The Old Testament reading for today comes from the book of Exodus. It will be selected texts from Exodus 7 on through chapter 10. So you can open to Exodus 7 if you'd like and follow along with me, or you can just look at the screen. Uh, I have selected a few um, passages uh, right in the middle of uh, the, the account of the ten plagues that were poured out upon the Egyptians that accomplished the redemption of the people of Israel. God freed them from Egypt by his mighty hand. Exodus 7, verses 1 through 20, first of all. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. You can turn now to Exodus 9, and we'll look at verses 22 through 26. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, so that there may be hail in the land of Egypt, on man and beast, and every plant of the field in the land of Egypt. Then Moses stretched out his staff toward heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire rained down upon the earth. And the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very heavy hail, such as had never been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck down everything that was in the field in all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. Now let us turn to Exodus 10, 21 through 23. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days, but all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Let us go now to the New Testament reading for today, which is Revelation chapter 8, verses 6 through 13. Revelation 8, 6 through 13. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood. And these were thrown upon all the earth, thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, 
and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining and likewise a third of the night. Then I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth as the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. So far the reading of God's word, we do pray blessing upon the preaching of it as well. Not only should we remember that the book of Revelation is a book that communicates truth through symbols, that is organized not chronologically but thematically and theologically, and that it is not only about events yet in our future but things past, present, and future. These three principles were emphasized last Sunday. I won't take much time to emphasize them again. But we must also remember that the book of Revelation was written for a church under attack. The book of Revelation was written for a church under attack. The book was delivered to churches and to the Christians who were members of those churches who were being assaulted by the evil one in a variety of ways. And this is how the evil one operates. His tactics are not uniform, but are very diverse and and creative and cunning. Uh, It is true that he, the evil one, like a prowling lion, uh, seeks to devour. But we should remember that he seeks to devour in a variety of ways. Sometimes he will lull the Christian into a sleepy state, disengaged and comfortable. Sometimes he will attempt to seduce the Christian with the world. So like a fish that is attracted to the flash of the lure, so he seeks to draw Christians away from their single-minded devotion to Christ to chase after the shiny things of this world. At other times, the evil one assaults the church by way of false teaching. Here, He seeks to capitalize upon the religious devotion and fervor of men. Uh, Let them remain religious is how he reasons. But let us be sure that the content of the religion is Christless without gospel. Uh, This is one of his tactics to keep men and women from God and from Christ by way of worldly, Christless, gospelless religion. And so false teaching is as potent a weapon as any other in the evil one's arsenal. The world is filled with people who are deeply religious. You've probably noticed this. And yet they do not know God, for they have not come to him trusting in Christ alone, who is the only mediator between God and man. Indeed, the world is filled with those who even bear the name Christian, who are in fact enemies of God, for they do not trust in Christ alone, but in their own righteousness. And so false teaching in its many forms, is a weapon used by the evil one in his battle against the church. Have you, no, have you noticed this, brothers and sisters? That the evil one seeks to devour, but his tactics are diverse. He also uses persecution. It may be that the Christian stands firm in the face of these other attacks that I have just mentioned, and yet begins to falter at the thought of public shame, at the thought of economic hardship, at the thought of imprisonment or beatings or even death. And so certainly the evil one uses persecution in seeking to keep men and women from Christ or 
in seeking to draw them away from the profession of faith that they have once made. We are going to have a baptism later today. And six from amongst us are going to make that public profession of faith through the waters of baptism. Our prayer for them should be that they remain true and firm on to the very end and that the evil one will have no success in seeking to draw them away from their profession of faith. It it really would not take very long to review the letters to the seven churches found at the beginning of the book of Revelation to be reminded of these themes that have already been present within this book. The, The book was written to churches under attack. The objective of the book from the beginning to the end is to encourage the Christian to endure, to turn from sin, and to preserve in the faith on to the very end. That is the objective of the book of Revelation. And sometimes we get caught up in uh, the, the, the symbolism of the book. We get caught up with all of the imagery. We begin to, begin to grow distracted, I think, when we, when we encounter it, wondering what does this particular thing represent or that. And we lose sight of the fact that the book, from beginning to end, is written to Christians who are under attack. And the motivation here that comes to them is to persevere, to preserve, to conquer on to the very end. Remember that at the end of the letter to the church in Ephesus, Christ said, To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Do you remember that? So Ephesus was exhorted in, in, in many ways, and, and, and yet it was held out to them. To the one who conquers, to the one who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Uh, Ephesians, conquer. Do not give in to the pressures that the evil one brings upon you, but conquer, persevere, overcome. To Pergamum, he said, to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. To Thyatira, he said, to the one who conquers, and he who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron as with when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father, and I will give him the morning star. To Sardis, he said, to the one who conquers, will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. To the church at Philadelphia, he said to the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. And to Laodicea, he said to the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. So as from the very beginning, the book of Revelation is clearly intended to, 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 to encourage Christians who are at war, Christians who are facing pressures of, of, of various kinds to persevere, to conquer, to overcome. That is the intent of the book of Revelation from the beginning on to the very end. And why do I emphasize this? Well, as we encounter the meat of the book of Revelation, as we work through the seal cycle, as we already have, and as we work through the trumpets and later the bowls, we have to keep this objective in mind. What are these revelations? What are these visions intended to do? Are they intended to predict specific events yet in our future? No, that is contrary with the whole thrust of the book. Instead, these images shown to us by way of uh, the Apostle John, the visions that he received, are intended to, to 
exhort the Christian, to encourage the Christian to stand up in the face of the various attacks that come upon them from the evil one. Uh, The seal cycle, which we have already considered, inspires the Christian to persevere by showing that though the Christian may suffer in this world, as the four horsemen described in the breaking of the first four seals roam the earth, working their death and destruction, God will make those who belong to him through faith in Christ to stand. God will make them to stand. There will be trials and tribulations. There will be sufferings that the Christian must pass through, but God is able to keep his. The seal cycle encourages the Christian to see the sufferings experienced in this world in the light of eternity. Take all that you're going through, all the sufferings that you might endure, but see them, view them in the light of eternity. With with the end of the story in view, we are to bear up under suffering, knowing that God cares for us in the midst of it. The one who has faith in Christ has been sealed by Christ. God in Christ will judge the wicked in the end. And in other words, the Christian will conquer for Christ has conquered. That was the message communicated by the seal cycle that we have already considered. And it is not difficult to see that the trumpet cycle, which we are now considering, communicates a very similar message. It too portrays the conquest of God and Christ over the ungodly, particularly those who persecute Christians. The cry of the souls of those who had been martyred should still ring in our ears. Do you remember it? The martyrs were seen under the altar. The souls of the martyrs were seen under the altar when the, first, when the fifth seal was opened. And what did they say? They cried out with a loud voice saying, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Do you remember that? Uh, seals 6 and 7 gave an answer to that question. But so do the trumpets. They also give an answer to that question asked by the souls of the martyrs. O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? What do the first six trumpets uh, reveal to us except that God is active even now, pouring out his judgments upon the wicked who dwell on the earth? When the first six trumpets are blown, we see to quote G.K. Beale, God responding to the saints' prayer by using angels to execute judgments on the persecuting world leading up to the last judgment, which is portrayed in the sounding of the seventh trumpet on in Revelation eleven fifteen. That is what we see when the seals are broken. When the first six seals are broken, we see God responding to the saints' prayer by using angels to execute judgments on the persecuting world, leading up eventually to the last judgment. The first four trumpets clearly belong together. The structure of the text makes that evident. And when they are blown, we see specifically, to quote Beale again, God depriving the ungodly of earthly security because of their persecution and idolatry in order to indicate their separation from him. I think it is a very good summary of what happens when these trumpets are blown. We see judgments poured out upon the wicked, indicating their separation from God. I wonder if you remember the sermon from last week. I hope that you do. If you don't, it's quite pitiful. You know, it's it's sad for me, you know. Uh, (laughs) um, But remember last week that I emphasized the connection between the seven trumpets of Revelation and the seven trumpets that were blown before the destruction of, of what city? 
Okay, you do remember. That is good. Uh, before the destruction of Jericho and record, as recorded in Joshua 6. That is such a significant connection to make and to, keep, and to keep in mind. Israel marched around Jericho once a day for six days. Seven priests blew seven trumpets as they marched. And what was the function of those trumpet blasts? They warned of impending doom. Doom is coming. Judgment is coming. The, the Lord is going to act in power. That is what those trumpets blown on the first six days uh, signified to the people of Jericho and also to the people of Israel who blew those trumpets. Uh, they announced that the judgment of the God of Israel was near. And on the seventh day, the people marched around the city seven times while the seven priests blew the seven trumpets. And what was the result? The walls of that city eventually fell. The people of Israel rushed in and a full and final judgment came upon Jericho. And Israel began her conquest of the land that was promised to her. The seven trumpets blown on the, the, seven trumpets blown on the seventh day ushered in judgment and conquest. The seven trumpets of Revelation are designed to bring that story to mind. I think one of the troubles with modern interpretations of the book of Revelation is that people are not familiar with the Old Testament as they should be. And so for the first century audience, when they heard that seven trumpets were given to seven angels and those seven angels prepared to blow them, those Christians, the early Christians, having been so much more familiar with the Old Testament than perhaps we are, immediately thought, Jericho, Jericho. This sounds just like Jericho. And so the Jericho story is supposed to come to mind. And when it comes to mind, the church is to think, as it was under the Old Covenant, so will it be under the new covenant. God will fight for his people. He will bring them safely into the land promised to them. This time it will be not a small sliver of land in Palestine, but into the new heavens and the new earth. And God will judge his enemies. At the end of time it will be not one city that falls, but all of the inhabitants of the earth that will stand before God to be judged fully and finally. And just as it was with Jericho, so too will it be with the world. God will constantly sound the trumpets which warn of the coming of the day of the Lord. Do you see how we are to use the rest of scripture to interpret what we have before us here in the book of Revelation? The Old Testament is where we find the key to the symbolism here in this wonderful book. But the story of Jericho is not the only story alluded to in this passage. I hope that was clear to you in the readings this morning. The reader should also think of the Exodus event and the ten plagues that God poured out upon the Egyptians leading to the deliverance of Israel. Do you remember that story, the story of the Exodus? God called Abraham and promised among other things, to make a great nation out of him. It was his grandson and his great-grandsons who went down into Egypt along with their families, being driven there by a famine. Joseph, one of their brothers, had attained power in that land and was able to provide safety for his small family. 430 years passed, and the descendants of Abraham had grown exceedingly in number. They were a great multitude now, but the people of Israel no longer enjoyed favor in the land. The king, who had shown favor to Joseph and to Joseph's family, was long dead. 
Now the descendants of Abraham were slaves to the Pharaoh. They were in captivity. And Moses was called by God to go and to set them free. And they would be freed, note this, not by military conquests, not by the power of the flesh, but by the mighty hand of God as he sent ten plagues upon the Egyptians, culminating with the death of the firstborn in all of Egypt, while simultaneously sparing the Israelites. You remember that story then. And the plagues were these. Water was turned to blood. Frogs covered the land. The dust was turned into gnats or lice. Gnats or lice covered the land. Swarms of flies covered the land. The death of all Egyptian livestock. Boils then broke out upon the people of Egypt. Hailstorms killed unsheltered humans, animals, and destroyed vegetation. Locust covered the land and consumed all remaining vegetation. And then darkness covered Egypt for three days. And finally, the firstborn children of all Egyptians, uh, Egyptian people and cattle perished. These are the ten plagues that were poured out upon the Egyptians, leading to their judgment, but the salvation of God's chosen ones. So notice that the plagues functioned in these two ways simultaneously. One, they were judgment to the enemies of God. But they were also simultaneously the means by which Israel was delivered. And please recognize this. When the first four trumpets are blown here in the book of Revelation, the plagues that were poured out upon the Egyptians are clearly alluded to. So just as the mention of seven trumpets given to seven angels is to bring to remembrance the Jericho story, so too all of these allusions to the plagues of, that were poured out upon the Egyptians are to come to mind when we hear of them here in the sounding of the first four trumpets. I, I want you to see and recognize how wonderfully complex the book of Revelation is. It is a very complex book. There is a lot going on in it. I view this passage that we are now considering as a kind of tangled mess of allusions to Old Testament passages, right? It is not as if those Old Testament passages are brought exactly into the New Testament and into the book of Revelation. But there are these allusions to these great acts of redemption as recorded for us in the pages of the Old Testament. Jericho is clearly alluded to, but so is the Exodus event. It was through the plague sent upon the Egyptians that God delivered Israel from bondage. And it was through the trumpet blasts at Jericho that Israel was brought into the promised land. So do you see it? These two momentous events, these two redemptive historical events, the Exodus and the Jericho event, serve as kind of bookends to Israel's experience How did Israel begin? Well, they were called out of bondage to Egypt by way of the ten plagues. And how did things end for them in terms of their wilderness wanderings and their entrance, the beginning of their entrance into the promised land? Well, it was the story of the conquest of Jericho that marks the end of their wilderness wanderings and their entrance into the promised land. This corresponds then to our experience in Christ Jesus, doesn't it? We were delivered by Christ from, not Egypt, but the power of sin, the power of death. We were delivered from, not Pharaoh, but the evil one himself. That is where the Christian life began. And it happened not by our own strength, but by the power of God Almighty. And we will wander in the wilderness for a time, will we not? 
We are sojourners and exiles. This is not our home. We are not of this world. And we will struggle in this world, being fed by God continuously, the manna that he has provided for us, being uh, being provided for from the rock which ushers forth water, who is uh, the Christ. All of these images are uh, found throughout the New Testament and applied to the people of God today. But as we wander in this wilderness land, we look forward to the land that has been promised to us, the new heavens and the new earth, don't we? And we will enter into the new heavens and the new earth, not by our own strength, not by our own power, but by the mighty hand of God Almighty. As it was for the saints in the old covenant, so too is it for the saints in the new covenant. The two experiences mirror one another. And so what is the message then being communicated by the, the seven trumpets of the book of Revelation? Is it not this, that God will fight for his people? That he will do for the new covenant church what he did for the old covenant church? He will bring us safely into the land promised to us. Let us consider briefly the first four trumpets one at a time. Look at verse 6 of Revelation 8. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood. And these were thrown upon the earth and a third of the earth was burned up. And a third of the trees were burned up and all green grass was burned up. Revelation 8, 6 through 7. This should be compared with Exodus 9, 22 through 25, which I read at the beginning of this sermon and the seventh plague that is described there, the hailstorm that killed unsheltered humans, animals, and vegetation. Are, do they not perfectly uh, correspond to one another? Uh, notice that the seventh plague is in the first trumpet both limited and also universalized. I think this is such an important thing to notice. When this seventh plague is alluded to in the sounding of the first trumpet, the seventh plague is both limited but also universalized. It is limited, notice, in that only a third of the earth is said to be affected by it. This is not a description of the final judgment when the whole earth will be judged, but this is a description of a partial judgment. It is a limited judgment. Only a third of the earth is said to be affected when the first trumpet is blown, but it is also universalized in that it is one third not just of Egypt, but of the whole earth. But of the whole earth, what then is described here with the blowing of the first trumpet? Except this truth that God will, from the time of Christ's first coming on to his second coming, pour out partial and perpetual judgments upon the nations of this earth, particularly those who persecute God's people. That's what happened with the Egyptians. It is what will happen with all the nations of the earth on until the second coming of Christ. That is the message being communicated here. That is the thing being symbolized. Look now at verse 8. The second angel blew his trumpet and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. And a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died. And a third of the ships were destroyed. Revelation 8, 8 through 9. This should be compared with Exodus 7, 1 through 20. And the first plague that is described there, that is the turning of the Nile into blood. You can see how the two images are connected. Notice that the first plague is in the second trumpet, both limited and universalized. 
it is limited and that only a third of the sea is said to be affected. This, again, is not a description of the final judgment when the whole realm will be judged. But this is a description of a partial judgment. Only a third of the sea is said to be affected. But it is universalized in that it is one third, not of the Nile River in Egypt, but of the seas of the earth. These, this is the realm that is affected, is one third of all of the oceans of the earth. The sea turned to blood and the sea creatures perishing certainly uh, is to remind us of the first plague poured out upon the Egyptians. Uh, But what of the burning mountain thrown into the sea? What are we to make of that? What does that symbolize? The futurists or the dispensationalists take this literally and imagine that this is a prophecy concerning a meteor that will one day fall into the sea or perhaps it is a description of a volcanic eruption. Uh, The trouble with this interpretation is that it is inconsistent with the principle of interpretation that is to be used throughout the book of Revelation. The book communicates truth via symbol. I might also add that the futurist isn't even consistent within their own system, which strives to interpret the book literally whenever possible. For the text does not say that a meteor will fall into the sea or that a volcano will erupt, but that something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. Even they must say that this something like a great mountain burning with fire symbolizes or stands for a meteor or volcanic eruption. I think it is a very faulty interpretation. It is far better to remain consistent in our interpretation of the book of Revelation And to recognize that mountains, listen to this, mountains often symbolize nations in the Bible. And that fire symbolizes God's judgment, as does the thought of something being consumed by the sea. What we have here then is a symbolic depiction of God's judgment falling upon a nation. God judged Egypt, did he not? He did. God judged Babylon later in Israel's history after the captivity, did he not? He did. And God judged Rome, and God will continue to judge the nations of the earth, bringing about both their rise and their fall. This is how our God operates. He, he, he rises up nations, and he, and he judges them. This has been true throughout human history. That is the thing, that is the The phenomenon that is being symbolized here with this great mountain burning with fire being cast into the sea. What is being said to us here? Well, in symbolic form, it is simply symbolizing what Christ already told us in a most direct way. That in this time between his first and second comings, there will be wars and rumors of wars and plagues and famines. Nations will rise and nations will fall. Notice that God is sovereign. Supreme over all of this. He is able to execute his judgments upon the wicked and the persecuting while preserving his people, just as he did bringing Israel out of Egypt, just as he did taking Israel into the promised land through the conquest of Jericho. God is able to do that same thing and indeed will until the end of time. That is what is being symbolized here. We look not to the newspaper to figure this out, we look not to the future. With vain speculations, we look to the pages of Holy Scripture for the key to the symbolism found here in the book of Revelation, which is filled with symbols from beginning to end. Turn with me to Jeremiah 51, if you would. Jeremiah 51, and look at verse 25. 
Jeremiah 51 and look at verse 25. It is here in this text that God, through the prophet Jeremiah, who lived long before the coming of Christ, is pronouncing judgment upon the Babylonians for their harsh treatment of Israel. So what is God doing through the prophet Jeremiah? He's saying, Babylon, you, you, you tremendously powerful nation, you, you nation that conquered Israel, you nation that oppressed the people of God, judgment is going to come upon you. And God is sovereign over that. He will bring judgment upon you. Listen to the language used to describe the destruction, the eventual destruction of Babylon. Behold, God says to Babylon, I am against you. Oh, destroying, what, what are they called? Oh, destroying mountain. Do you hear the terminology used to describe Babylon? I am against you, O destroying mountain, declares the Lord, which destroys the whole earth. I, God says, will stretch out my hand against you and roll you down from the crags and make you a what? A burnt mountain. I will make you a burnt mountain. No stone shall be taken from you for a corner and no stone for a foundation, but you shall be a perpetual waste, declares the Lord. This is the way that God in the old covenant through the prophet Jeremiah um, announces the judgment that is going to come upon Babylon. Does Babylon ever appear again in the book of Revelation, by the way? Those of you who are familiar with the book, yeah, the, the imagery of Babylon is all over the book of Revelation. That city stands for all wicked cities who have ever, all wicked nations who have ever um, existed. Go down now to verse 42 of Jeremiah 51. Same chapter, verse 42. I'd read the whole thing, except we don't have the time. Look at verse 42. How Babylon is taken... The praise of the whole earth sees. This wonderful city is, is going to be destroyed, is what is being said here. How Babylon has become a horror among the nations. Now what happens? The sea has come up on Babylon. She is covered with its tumultuous waves. Again, do you hear the imagery? What, what, what is Jeremiah saying? You, you mountain Babylon. God is going to set you on fire. He is going to judge you. And you are going to be consumed by the sea. This is the imagery used to describe the judgment that is going to come along Babylon. Now we go into the New Testament, back to uh, the book of Revelation, and we see the same language, the same imagery is being used. Not specifically concerning Babylon, but, but what is being described to us here is that God is going to continue to execute his judgments upon the wicked throughout the time between Christ's first and second coming, judging his enemies while preserving his people just as he did in the times of old. Look now at Revelation 18.21. Revelation 18.21. This passage describes the judgment of Babylon. This time it is not literal Babylon. We are in the book of Revelation, not in the book of Jeremiah. Uh, but Babylon symbol, symbolizes here all of the wicked nations of the earth. Um, as we will see in our study of the book of Revelation, Babylon will symbolize the nations of the earth. But look at how the judgment of Babylon is described in 1821. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the what? See. So John sees another vision. Great angel takes this large stone, throws it into the sea. And what does this symbolize? Here we are told. This 
is symbolizes the destruction of Babylon. For the angel says, so will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and be found no more. So the imagery of a great stone being thrown into the sea, we are actually told in Revelation 18.21, is symbolic of the destruction of Babylon, which stands for all the wicked nations upon the earth. Here it is a millstone that symbolizes Babylon. But notice that the nation is said to be thrown into the sea. This corresponds with what is described at the sounding of the second trumpet when something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea and a third of the sea became blood. This symbolizes the rise and fall of nations. Of course, the sea turning to blood should remind us of the plague that was cast upon the Egyptians. Again, notice the limitation. It is one mountain that John saw and a third of the sea is said to be affected This represents not the final judgment, but the partial judgments that are ever present with the rise and fall of nations in the history of the world. This is not a description of the end of time. It's one mountain thrown into the sea, not all mountains. And a third of the sea is affected, not all of the sea. Um, I, I would like to take you quickly to two other places in Revelation where the full and final judgment is portrayed so that you might compare them with the partial judgments described here. Are you tracking with me, by the way? Okay. What is being described here? Partial judgments, perpetual judgments, the rise and fall of nations, God being sovereign over that, the judgment of the enemies of God while the people of God are preserved. Where where do we get all of that? Old Testament. Old Testament also paying careful attention to how the book of Revelation functions. I want to take you to two places in Revelation where the full and final judgment is portrayed so that you might compare them with the partial judgments that are symbolized here in the trumpet cycle, the first six trumpets in particular. Turn quickly back to Revelation 6.12. Revelation 6.12 describes to us the breaking of the sixth seal, which symbolizes the final judgment. It is there that we read, when he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up. And notice this, every mountain and island was removed from its place. Do you see it there? This is not a description of a partial judgment, a limited judgment, but a description of the full and final judgment. All of the created world is here Affected, symbolizing the time of the end. Every mountain and island was removed from its place. Turn now back to Revelation 16.3. Revelation 16.3, we find ourselves in the middle of the, the bowl cycle. There will be seven bowls that are poured out. The thing unique about the bowls is that the whole cycle describes the time of the end, not just the end part of it. Uh, the, the bull cycle describes the final judgment. Now, now look here at Revelation 16.3. The second angel poured out his bull into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. Is anything restrained here? No, it's just the whole, the, the whole sea is affected, and everything in it uh, dies. If you were to compare that with the trumpet cycle, uh, you would see that what is judged in part in the trumpet cycle, is judged in full in the bowl cycle. This is because the first six trumpets symbolize judgments that are partial and not final. Go back now to Revelation 8. Revelation 8, 
verse 10. I told my wife last night, I said, I struggled with this sermon, bringing some form to it. I think you're sensing that. But I said, I think the reason I'm struggling with it so much is because we have grown up with an interpretation of the book of Revelation that's so different, and so I feel the obligation to prove the point that this here is not a depiction of events yet future to us that will be fulfilled literally, but rather a depiction of how things will be from the time of Christ first first coming on to the end. And they are symbols of partial and perpetual judgments. It's it's challenging in in my mind to to convince you of this in a short period of time. But look at Revelation 8.10. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The star that John saw falling from heaven, whose name is Wormwood, symbolizes the casting down of an angel, the angel, who has authority over the nation whose fall was just portrayed. Did you just hear my interpretation of the symbolism here? When I I wrote that, I said, they're not going to believe me. (laughs) They're not going to be convinced. What did I just say? Uh, the, The star that John saw falling from heaven here when the third angel blew his trumpet uh, symbolizes the casting down of the angel who has authority over the nation whose fall was just portrayed. Where was the fall of a nation portrayed? Well, with the casting of a burning mountain into the sea. But here we see a star falling from heaven. Uh, you're probably accustomed to the futurist or dispensational interpretation which says that this is prophecy concerning that, that this is a prophecy concerning yet another meteor that will fall to the earth someday, poisoning literally a third of the rivers so that people drink the water and die. I wonder when that will happen. I wonder where that meteor would need to strike. It would have to be a very strategic uh, geographical location, wouldn't it? So that that meteor would manage to poison a third, literally it has to be a third of the world's rivers, right? So that when men and women go to drink from those rivers, they die. that's the futurist dispensational interpretation that you and I, many of you and I, uh, grew up with. I don't buy it. Um, Instead, this star symbolizes an angel being cast down from its position of power or authority. And I think the context demands that we see that this angel must be associated with the nation that has just been portrayed as fallen. Turn to Revelation 9.1. It's there that we find another reference to a star falling. Revelation 9.1. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and a star fallen from heaven, and, so, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth. Another reference to a falling star. Is it a meteor? No, look at the text. It says... And he, that is the star fallen from heaven, was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. So Revelation 1.9 mentions another falling of another star. But clearly this is not an impersonal space object, but a living being. The star of 9.1 represents an angelic being. This should not surprise us, for the Bible uses this symbolism elsewhere. 
And so should we not take 810 in the same way then? The star's name is wormwood. Wormwood is an herb that makes things bitter. It is used to symbolize judgment. Wormwood is used to symbolize the judgment of God uh, throughout the scriptures. Listen, for example, to Jeremiah 9, 14 through 15. God is here talking about pouring out judgment upon Israel for their unfaithfulness. But they have walked according to the dictates of their own hearts and after the Baals. They've gone after idols, which their fathers taught them. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will feed them, this people, with wormwood and give them water of gall to drink. This isn't the only place that the reference to wormwood appears in the Old Testament. Another place is Jeremiah twenty-three fifteen. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts concerning the prophets, Behold, I will feed them with wormwood and make them drink the water of gall For from the prophets of Jerusalem, profaneness has gone out into all the land. In other words, I'm going to pour out my judgment upon Israel for their idolatry and and because of their false teaching. I'm going to pour out judgment upon the prophets in particular. I will feed them with wormwood. So the star falling from heaven that John saw is symbolic of the casting down of the angel who had authority over the nations whose fall was portrayed by the burning mountain that was thrown into the sea. And when this happens, the people of earth, it is not that they will literally drink water poisoned with the, 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 the herb we call wormwood, but it is that they will be tormented. They will be judged. They will partake of bitterness when God pours out his partial and perpetual judgments upon the earth. Do you not see manifestations of this all around you today? Nations fall. Civil wars arise. Famines and plagues consume people. Men and women go about happy in their prosperity, only to have destruction come upon them, don't they? You see it in the world today, and it has been a phenomenon that has existed throughout human history. It will continue that way on to the end. That is what is being said here in the book of Revelation. But what about God's people? God will preserve his people just as he did in the days of the Exodus and just as he did with the conquest of Jericho. God will fight for his people. Look now at 8.12. The fourth angel blew his trumpet And a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. Uh, Some futurists or dispensationalists imagine that this prophecy is concerning a time when we will have 18 hours of darkness and 6 hours of daylight. I quoted from LaHaye's commentary last week where he presented that interpretation. It is far better that our minds go to Exodus 10, 21 through 23, and the description of the ninth of the ten plagues when the land of Egypt was covered in complete darkness for three days. Notice that the ninth plague is in the fourth trumpet, both limited and universalized. The judgment is limited and that the sun, moon, and stars are darkened, not completely as it was in Egypt, but by a third This is not a reference to the final judgment. Elsewhere, the final judgment is portrayed by these bodies being completely uh, rolled up and done away with. But the judgment is universalized in that the darkness covers not only Egypt, but it affects the whole earth. 
The darkening of the sun, moon, and stars symbolizes the judgment of God. What happened when Egypt was struck? Well, darkness came upon that land. A darkness that can be felt. Do you remember that language from the Exodus account? Uh, you, you know, I think you know what is meant by that. A darkness that can be, it was total darkness. They couldn't even see one another. It was darkness for three days. What happened when Christ hung on the cross? There was darkness at noontime. Because it was there on the cross that the judgment of God was poured out, not upon us sinners, but upon the Son who atoned for the sins of many. And so darkness symbolizes the judgment of God. The fourth trumpet symbolizes partial and perpetual judgments uh, that God will pour out upon the nations of the earth during the church age, particularly those nations which persecute the church, who is the Israel of God. Do these visions shown to John have historical fulfillment? Do they? Yes, they do. Will these judgments portrayed to John be fulfilled in the future? Yes, they will. They will continue to be shown true. Our contention is this, though. They are not isolated only to the future. These are not descriptions of one event yet to come, but rather these are descriptions of the things that will mark the church age. From the time of Christ's first coming on to the time of his second coming, nations will rise and fall. There will be wars and rumors of wars and famines and plagues. There will be judgments that are poured out upon the nations of the earth. But God is able to preserve his people in the midst of it. He will give us victory. God is able to judge his enemies while preserving his people, delivering them from the evil one and bringing them safely into the eternal land of promise. He proved it in the Exodus. He proved it at Jericho. But these were but a prototype of the victory won by Christ. Christ has conquered. Christ has conquered. And we will rule with him if we preserve in the faith. This will happen not by might nor by power but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Would you bow with me for prayer? Father in heaven, we do ask for help as we continue to consider this complex book. We thank you for the complexity, for it turns into uh, something that is rich. Uh, we, Lord, your people, are to be people of the book. We are to know thoroughly the Old and New Testaments and see them as your revelation to us Lord, help us to know your word and to interpret it rightly and then to apply it to our lives. Lord, we confess to you that uh, we live in a foreign land. We are not at home in this place. We think so differently than the world around us. We are striving to live in such a different way and we feel the pressure of the evil one all around us as he brings his many assaults upon your church, his multifaceted assaults. Lord, give us victory over these things, we pray. We thank you for the deliverance that we have in Christ Jesus. You have redeemed us. You have freed us from slavery. We thank you for the promise of life eternal. Lord, bring us safely into that promised land. We trust that you are able, Lord, and we confess that we cannot fight our own battles, but that you must fight for us. We are dependent upon you, beginning, middle, and end, Lord, for our salvation. Make us faithful, Lord. And give us faith to trust in you, even when the world around us looks so intimidating and so strong. May we trust in you and in the power of your might. These things we pray in Christ's name. Amen.